SCP-6005 Cascadia The Foundation is, of course, a modern organization in every sense of the word. They construct modern facilities, utilize modern technology, and in general tuck themselves away from the outside world. Modernity is a core concept of the Foundation, as it is for much of civilization. The SCP we'll be looking at today is partially about the Foundation's adherence to modernity, as well as their adherence to normality, or at least as far as they define it. The article begins with the start of an interview between a Dr. Gabriel and an Agent Hawley. It seems that Hawley is being demoted or reassigned from a project, and he's not pleased about it. He had been assigned to SCP-6005, and Dr. Gabriel tells him that he had his chance and he blew it. Hawley, however, doesn't know what he did that contradicted Foundation policy, and tells Gabriel that he honestly has no clue why he's being reprimanded. We're then given the file for SCP-6005 itself, which is classified by order of the O5 Council, and describes a phenomenon associated with the disappearances of 1,943 people in heavily wooded areas of the Cascadia bioregion between 1985 and now. No trace of any of these individuals has ever been found. The Cascadia bioregion refers to an area extending over 2,500 miles and includes all of the state of Washington, most of Idaho, and portions of Oregon, California, Nevada, Wyoming, Montana, Alaska, Yukon, and British Columbia. The people that have disappeared include a wide range of individuals, all living in or around the bioregion. No correlation can be found between their gender, age, race, income, political views, or any other societal factor. Consequently, no SCP-6005 event has ever been predicted, and the only definite commonality between the victims is an unusually high rate of mental health issues. Obviously. Plenty of people have gone missing in this region in the last few decades, but what makes these specific disappearances notable is that they seem to occur in exactly the same way. The victim will make a trip by themselves into the nearest woodland, with no planning or explanation left whatsoever, and they will not take any supplies with them. The Foundation has considered some non-anomalous explanations for these disappearances, but none have ever been deemed plausible. The phenomenon was first noticed in 1992, thanks to an early Foundation analysis AI picking up the unusually high rate of disappearances. They suppressed the disappearances and amnesticized the families, but so far they haven't made any headway on further research or containment. Dr. Gabriel brings up this point to Hawley in the interview, but Hawley says that words can be deceptive as the Foundation's clinical tone is its own kind of bias. The reason that no headway has been made on SCP-6005 isn't because it's some unknowable anomaly that the Foundation has poured years of effort into with their top personnel. Instead, pretty much everyone assigned to the project was, in Hawley's words, blitheringly incompetent. Nobody wanted to be assigned to the project, as it wasn't glamorous, there was no obvious leads, 
and a lot of people didn't even think it was an anomaly at first. It got dumped onto low-level personnel that misbehaved or those close to retirement. Hawley says that nobody cared about a few missing kids that an experimental AI was alarmed about, and he's not even sure how it stayed on file all those years. Gabriel says that he paints a very bleak picture of the Foundation, but Hawley just wants to know what they're going to do with him. Gabriel can't tell him though as he doesn't know, and he's just here to get the record straight. He wants to know why Hawley was placed on this project and how he felt about it. Hawley responds that he got assigned here because he was dumb enough to have a bright idea. Hawley's bright idea was to use dream analysis on a diverse range of mental health patients in the Pacific Northwest region in order to identify any common elements. He pointed to the results from studying dreams during the research of SCP-3007, World of Two Artists, to argue that it was a potentially neglected area of study. Director Adler put him on the project, giving him a small task force for an initial period of two months to see if he could produce any results. After one month, the task force found a strong connection between the dreams of five individuals, drawn from a larger pool of 150. All of the dreams concern the subject of forests, trees, and the natural world, with some variations. The first subject, a 33-year-old woman from Portland, Oregon with a history of some involvement with an artist communities, dreamed of standing at the edge of a deep forest which smelt of pine. She could see a huge mountain on the other side, which frightened her enough to run in the opposite direction. Despite this, she found herself deeper in the forest, which relieved her, as she could no longer see the mountain. The second subject, a 44-year-old man from Idaho with no prior anomalous involvement, dreamed of chasing a deer through a sparse woodland which gradually became thicker. He eventually raised his rifle to shoot the deer, but the rifle became entangled in branches, and the deer got away. Third, a 78-year-old woman from Washington dreamed of picking wild berries in a rainforest before the berries began rapidly expanding. She then placed her hands over her head and found herself in an empty clearing at night, feeling a rapid paranoia. Fourth was a 24-year-old man from Seattle, believed to be a member of Are We Cool Yet?, who dreamed that they were a beetle living on a tree branch when the branch suddenly became twisted around a gun being raised by a middle-aged man. He crawled to the barrel of the gun and proceeded to stare into it for an extended period. Finally, the fifth subject was a 19-year-old man from British Columbia, the nephew of a prominent Ann artist, who dreamed that he was staring through the tree cover at the sun which, despite causing him significant pain, he refused to stop. After several minutes, the trees began to cover the sun, relieving the man's pain and anxiety. We're given an interview between Hawley and this fifth individual, named as Tom Ivanov. Hawley asks him to talk about the dreams, and he quickly proves to be a rather flippant interviewer, telling him that he doesn't have all day, and remarking that Tom's life is real sad when he mentions that he wasn't having a great time at college. Tom says that the dream started a few months ago, 
and he's always in a forest, although it changes a lot. He's always staring at the sun, which scares him as he can't stop doing it in the dreams. He says that when he was little, a kid made him stare at the sun once. In the dreams, the trees eventually cover the sun after around 10 minutes, which comfort him. He says that he's not scared of the sun itself, but rather the light, as it felt like people could see him. Nobody could see him in the forest, because nobody was there, just the trees, the smell of moss and wet earth, and a deer far in the distance. Hawley asks him about his feeling of the woods in general, and if he often goes hiking. Tom says that he doesn't much anymore, but he used to with his aunt Nora, the Antarctist. Hawley tells him that his aunt is on file, and asks if she's in Alaska now. Tom says that she disappeared, as she was going to head to Alaska with a group of activists, but she went missing a week before. Tom continues to mention that he has to leave, as he has something to do. But when Hawley tells him that he's staying here due to a bug that's been going around, Tom says that he wants to go out to go to the woods, which intrigues Hawley. Back to the interview with Gabriel. Hawley says that he didn't get it then, as he was too concerned about how the dreams were all connected. He wasn't listening to what Tom was telling him. Tom kept trying to get out that night after the interview, and they had to restrain him. Eventually, the months dragged on, and they couldn't justify cell space for some kid with funny sleeping habits, so they released him. Gabriel says that that was against protocol, but Hawley tells him it was the director's call, as he wanted results, but not if it meant losing valuable cell space. Less than a week later, Tom's missing persons file came in, and by then, Hawley was expecting it. Six out of the 150 they interviewed ended up having dreams, and all of them disappeared within a month. If they expanded that to the entire region, and included people that weren't mental health patients, they could have thousands of people wandering into forests, never to be seen again. Gabriel says that that would be horrifying, but Hawley just thinks of it as inconvenient. When Gabriel calls him out for not having a heart, Hawley laughs and says that the Foundation isn't here to help people. He tells him that they live in a world of dragons, hiding away in mountains or in paper boxes, and at one point he wanted to know all about the anomalies in the world. Gabriel asks him if that's why he joined the Foundation, but Hawley admits it probably wasn't, but he doesn't remember anymore. He continues on saying that in the months afterwards, people continued to dream about forests and then disappear, wanting to be alone. It wasn't some sort of anomalous art project, as only the Foundation noticed these people were missing, and it seemed to be random and untargeted. Hawley remembered something similar from years ago, a shared dream that brought down a Foundation site. The site kept on bringing in people who'd shake the walls of their cages and scream about a garden. Hawley thought that the forest dreams might be connected, so he tried looking into the files from the decommissioned site, but they had all been wiped clean. Gabriel is shocked that someone would do that, as it goes against every protocol, but Hawley again ridicules him for his naivete. 
Gabriel says that they would have noticed something that large, but Holly tells him that maybe it was a small matter, just some kids having bad dreams. He was only interested in it being a lead, so he went back to Tom before they released him and asked him some more questions. An addendum tells us that the records from the decommissioned site, Site 1015, were moved to a secure facility in Ohio, and not expunged without any explanation. Tom tells Hawley that he just wants to go home, but Hawley doesn't believe him, and they're keeping him instead of letting him slink off to the woods just yet. He asks Tom if he ever remembers dreaming about a garden, and after a few moments of silence, Tom responds and says that it's always been a forest. After asking him if he's sure, Hawley tells him to enjoy his stay and gets up to leave. Tom stops him and says that he didn't see a garden, but he did see a few things that were wrong and not meant to be there. He saw an urn, a rake, a flower bed covered in filth. Hawley asks him what it means, but Tom just says it was wrong and polluting the forest. It was a human thing that didn't belong in the forest, instead belonging under the sun. He says that they came from somewhere outside, and they were brought in since they're not part of the forest. He says he doesn't know anything else, and they let him go. Holly went back to the other four individuals that had been having dreams and asked them about gardens, gardening, or man-made landscapes in their dreams. All of them experienced extreme distress from the questions, but were able to provide some examples. One mentioned that the mountain in her dreams often transformed into a rotunda, a common feature of 19th century English gardens, and she could hear the sound of breaking marble after the trees obscured its view. The one hunting the deer reported breaking away from the deer to shoot at numerous carp, jumping in and out of the forest floor while hearing running water. He hits all the carp before collapsing into a kind of calm darkness. The one picking berries reported a similar dream, except that she was in a vandalized flower bed. Her distress was so strong while describing this dream that she had to be removed from the interview room. Finally, the one that dreamed of being a beetle staring down the rifle barrel reported a dream in which they were fired from the rifle, finding themselves in a large lake with the corpses of several carp floating around them. Confident that there was some connection between these dreams and whatever happened at Site 1015, Hawley decided to go investigate the former site itself, along with another agent, Casper. Command reprimands Hawley for his lax attitude towards Foundation protocol when starting the exploration, but the two agents continue into the site, located in a forested area. The main building has been clearly abandoned, with debris and plant life scattered around the exterior. The front doors easily swing open due to the locks being broken, and the lobby is dilapidated, with plants and a small tree growing up through stripped concrete tiles. Casper asks Command why this site wasn't demolished or put under basic protection, but they explain that some former sites with no anomalous matter present just get abandoned to save money. Casper then asks if they're sure that there was nothing anomalous left over, and they assure the two that there isn't, 
dismissing Hawley's suspicions as conspiratorial nonsense. Hawley heads downstairs to where the records should be, eventually coming to a red door with yellow and black tape curled up at the bottom of it. Inside, they find only a large, empty storage room. In one corner, however, Hawley finds a cardboard box filled with papers underneath some wreckage. Casper asks how they possibly missed this when clearing out, and Hawley says that either they missed it and the ceiling conveniently fell on top of it, or the ceiling fell on it before they even abandoned this facility. As Hawley drags the box out, Casper shines his flashlight around before stopping and asking Hawley if that urn was always there. Hawley turns to see a tall urn sitting in the opposite corner and says that it was not. Command interjects, telling the two agents to stay calm and remember their training, as they have a rapid response team on the line due to a possible unreality incident. The two agents quickly drag the box out and turn again, now seeing a metal carving of a cherub instead of the urn. They quickly leave the room, but Hawley turns back one more time, now seeing a humanoid figure standing in the doorway, with the size and proportions of a teenage woman, but composed entirely of wood and leaves. Hawley calls out to it, and the figure raises its head and raises a hand towards him. It then speaks, albeit with a distorted voice that was only made comprehensible after enhancing it. It says that this was a ruined place once, and asks Hawley if he's an angel. It's interrupted by a torrent of water pouring down from the ceiling, mixed with numerous twigs and branches. The water disintegrates the figure into wood chippings and begins to rush towards the two agents. They run up the stairs, finding that the concrete sections of the walls are now composed of wood, and even worse, a huge tree is blocking the front doors. Command directs them to a fire escape, and they begin moving towards it, seeing a large water fountain with flowers growing from it. Casper asks if that urn just appeared, or did they just not notice it, but Holly yells at him to just keep running. They reach the fire escape while the sound of singing can be heard, and they rush out into the surrounding woodland. They're extracted successfully, with the box of papers in tow. Site 1015 was secured by a task force, but no further anomalous activity was detected. Most of the papers they recovered were of no use, except for one. The paper concerns a diary entry from a subject that was held at Site 1015 due to her obsession with the garden. As usual, I'll read this entry verbatim. I wake up. I walk around my room. There is a window, high in the wall, that lets me stare at the moon. It's not meant to be an unkind room, but they just don't care enough. They're exhausted. They look through me, not because they're unkind, but because they don't have the energy left. They ooze through the concrete they make for themselves, the concrete that protects something they can't even see anymore. So last night, I visited the garden again. I know they told us not to. 
I know what they told us to do, but I couldn't help myself. The flower beds were overturned, but the dirt was still there, scattered over the grass. I put it back where it was. I suppose the others didn't notice. It looked like early fall. I saw a nightingale that Nora had made. It sang to me, and I sang back. The sky was clouded, but that autumn cloud that promises rain. The same cloud you see over dull city blocks, but here it was better. It was a garden cloud. A cloud made for gardens. How could someone else have done that? I climbed the hill and looked down. The hill was getting jagged, almost like a mountain. The rotunda was sinking into it, so I put that right too. I felt its marble on my fingers. I looked inside and there was a silver tomb, carved by taking rock from the earth and taking the silver from the rock. But we would always reshape the rock, put it back afterwards, put silver roots in. Are there gardens in New York? Is an alleyway a garden? Is a patch of weed in Baltimore not just as much of a green expanse as Bobber's tomb? Underneath the sirens, it steals sunlight between skyscrapers. I looked down onto the crisscrossing paths, where the gravel had been scattered, where my friends had placed each rock so lovingly. I know we aren't meant to, but I put that back too. I put it all back, piece by piece, the fountains and four-part gardens and octagonal tombs and the distant cascades beyond them. They tinge blue in the half-light. In a moment, it seems natural again. It's how it should be, how it always should have been, all Portland smothered by the grass, the people lying and eating lotus and sketching out the sky in red and white, all the way to Seattle, to Vancouver, to Haida Gwaii and the Tinglet Shore, campfires smoking on a distant valley as the cascades rise and rise. Then I looked down again, and it wasn't right. It was all concrete stuff. I knew it wasn't, but an angel told me it was. An archangel who was sent to Mary, and the only green left is the distant trees. There's no going back. I used to dream once, but now the waking world seems like a dream. I can understand, intellectually, what they did to me, but I can't go back. This place is just ruins. A prison. Gray walls leading back to what they're guarding at the heart of it. Power. It always comes back to power. The woman is clearly devoted to the return of the natural world and the removal of modern civilization. Hawley tells Gabriel that after he read this, things shifted sideways for him, but Gabriel says that he shouldn't get attached to anomalies. Hawley is surprised by this, after all of Gabriel's talk about kindness and helping people, but Gabriel has had experience with anomalies getting loose and seeing what they can do. 
Hawley says that he's just as lost as she was, and explains how beautiful an idea it is that she described. A world in harmony, where everyone comes together as one. Gabriel isn't buying it, though, as he knows the difference between natural and unnatural. Hawley goes on to say that sometimes he goes hiking out west, and when he looks up at the Cascades, he can sometimes see that they all blend into one another, mountains colliding with another into one huge cascade. Gabriel just says that that's very poetic, but it doesn't change what an anomaly is, and if this anomaly was left unchecked, it could spread across the country, piercing the veil and wrecking cities. Hawley argues that he doesn't know that that's what would happen, and he's just guessing, as he can't dictate what is or isn't natural. But Gabriel retorts that neither can Hawley. He says that ambition is a dangerous thing, and he's seen it make men go rotten. But Hawley says that it made them better. We're here because of mutations over millennia, and this could just be the next one. They shouldn't define little lines around what should and shouldn't be contained. Obviously, that's exactly what the SCP Foundation does, but Hawley seems convinced. Gabriel instead asks him what happened next, and he says that that's when a hole opened up beneath him. They ended up finding two more relevant documents from Site 1015, one being an audio log of an interview between a Dr. Castro and the writer of the diary, named Cassie. Castro asks her what she dreamed of last night, and she tells him just the forest, but he doesn't believe her. He thinks she dreamed of the garden as well, and apparently some redacted individual told her some information about it. According to the individual, it's unnatural, and it was placed in their heads to hurt them. The garden is unnatural because it is an act of violence by humanity onto nature, by being created from burning trees and chewing up the natural soil. Cassie says that the garden doesn't feel that way, but Castro assures her that it never does, but she's hurting the dreams and the forest by dreaming of the garden. She apologizes, and Castro says that apologizing is the first step to forgiveness. He hopes to see more progress from her soon, as the redacted individual would be disappointed in her, and he'll be back soon. There was definitely something very odd going on at Site 1015, to the point of the Foundation personnel seeming like they're affected by 6005. Another notable oddity of all this is that the document from Site 1015 referred to the project as SCP-6005 despite the documents being written in 1984, and the first known disappearances from 6005 only go back to 1985. We're given some answers then, in the other document they recovered, the original documentation for SCP-6005. It describes 6005 as a telepathic field, which currently contains over 10,000 members across the Pacific Northwest and Idaho. The description originally stated that it formed naturally, but it was changed to say without external interference instead. 
those affected by the field have created a shared environment, accessible only through dreams. This dream environment was originally a massive, elaborate garden, incorporating multiple styles, covering much of the Pacific Northwest within the dream world. This level of combined telepathic force produced a significant effect on baseline reality, leading to environmental changes and large-scale community coordination in the real world. The Foundation took this as a significant threat, and contained the anomaly through Project Vulpine. We'll get to what exactly Project Vulpine is in a second, but Hawley understood what this meant. The Foundation personnel at 1015 weren't affected by any anomaly, but instead they were changing the affected individual's thinking. Rather than focusing on this shared garden that was bleeding into the real world, they instead became traumatized to the point of wanting to flee and disappear into the woods. Gabriel says that containment is a tricky business, but Hawley says this wasn't containment, it was genocide. They designed these disappearances and then buried it so deep that the rest of the Foundation forgot. When Hawley brought this to the director's attention, it was cast aside, and Hawley was taken off the project. Gabriel and Hawley have really switched places at this point, with Hawley discussing the importance of compassion within the Foundation, and Gabriel essentially saying that the ends justify the means. Hawley tells him that the ends are just normalcy and they shouldn't be the ones to define where real ends and unreal begins. That's what Cassie meant by the Foundation's power, the power to define what is and isn't right, a moral code that means nothing and leads nowhere. The Foundation exists only to protect itself and further itself. Gabriel tells him that what he's saying is treason, and Hawley asks him if he still thinks that after hearing about all this and about the thousands of people that were forced to disappear. Gabriel says, yes, always. And after staring at him for a few seconds, Hawley asks what site he was previously assigned to. Gabriel slowly smiles and says that he believes there was an addendum to the original 6005 document. The addendum is, of course, the description of Project Vulpine, a large-scale psychological reorientation project. The goal was simple, change the feelings of the dreamers so that rather than the garden being associated with mutual contentment and positive life experience, it became associated with negative feelings. They then would create an alternative conceptual sphere that could self-contain SCP-6005. Through a combination of medication and psychological training, the idea was implanted in the Dreamers that the Garden is a human imposition on nature that actively causes suffering and harm to nature, rather than living in harmony with it. They were brainwashed to think that any creation or interaction with the garden causes active harm and pain to its plants and animals. 
Then they would be taught that the forest is the ideal landscape, a land devoid of cooperation. Rather than working together to build this dream landscape, they would instead focus on isolation, darkness, and avoidance of other dreamers. Foundation personnel soon found that this project led to high numbers of depression and PTSD within the dreamers, and a handful of ethics committee members became concerned at the numbers. They withdrew their objections after the potential threat of 6005 was pointed out to them. Eventually, the actual telepathic field that was spreading the garden dream became corrupted, and instead spread the forest dream. It's now considered to be fully self-containing, as the individuals that it affects will simply wander into the forest to die, rather than working together to build the dream garden as they were originally. There's another interview with Cassie listed, this one being with the redacted individual. He asks Cassie if she's been visiting the garden again, and after some prodding and assurance that they're just here to help, Cassie admits that she's not sure how the garden can be unnatural, as it was a free and beautiful place that they created. They didn't tear anything up, and they were happy, as she's never heard a nightingale before creating the garden. The individual tells her that nightingales are in forests, too, but she yells that she doesn't want to go to the forest, she just wants it to be like it was, where she could walk down the paths and stretch her arms. The individual says that he's very disappointed and surprised at her, as she must have forgotten how much the plants and trees scream when you tell them where they can grow. She says that she can't feel it, and he asks if he needs to remind her again. The sound of a bag being shuffled is heard, and he says that she'll have to listen to their pain again so that she knows what she's doing to the trees. He asks her what it was that she asked him last time he was here, which was, if he's an angel. He laughed at this, saying that he just shares a name with the archangel that came and told Mary what she had to do, and now he's here to tell Cassie what she needs to do. Cassie apologizes, and he says that it's okay, as they're just here to help. Of course, the individual was... Dr. Gabriel, who ran the project. He tells Hawley that he's not a megalomaniac, he's just a doctor, and he did what he had to do. He says that the ethics committee had no issues with his actions, but this only causes Hawley to snort, and tells him that he still had a choice. Gabriel says that the two of them are no different, as Hawley has been a Foundation agent for years and is just as complicit. Holly agrees that they're all complicit every day, but you still have a choice. You can keep your head down and pretend like nothing's wrong, like it's fine that the skies are dark and the buildings are gray, or you can do what he's done. Gabriel asks him what he's done, and Holly slowly smiles, explaining that there was one thing that always bothered him. They never got a good description of the garden and he wondered where the nicest place to lie down and look at the clouds was. Gabriel is surprised that that's what bothered him, 
since he failed in his investigation and never found out why these people were actually disappearing in the forest. Holly says that that part was actually easy in the end, and goes on to explain what Cascadia is as a bioregion. The concept is an environmental region wherein communities make more sense when they're tied to particular environmental zones. It's a more harmonious way of living, as the entire region is run by interconnected communities that draw upon the world around them. What this all means, according to Hawley, is that Gabriel had no idea what he was doing. The telepathic network was an interconnected system, and Gabriel didn't turn that psychic energy inwards to contain itself, he just hid it somewhere more convenient. Gabriel doesn't follow, and Hawley isn't surprised, telling him that he doesn't understand people due to sitting in his little office and pushing numbers together. With that, Gabriel prepares to leave, telling Holly that they'll likely ship him off to Arizona for all this, but he still doesn't know what he did wrong. Gabriel says that he said it himself, they have power and Holly does not, and they want him gone. Before Gabriel leaves, however, Holly stands up and asks him where he thinks he is. Gabriel looks around and sees that they're in the middle of a dense forest, sitting at a carved wooden table. Holly explains that psychic energy doesn't just turn inwards, but instead it seethes, burns, and finds new pathways. Gabriel told it to become a forest, so it did, one that reaches across all of Cascadia. Holly had drugged Gabriel and taken him here with the telepathic field causing Gabriel to think he was in a Foundation interrogation room until now. Holly had told the forest and everyone in it what Gabriel had done, and a figure emerges from the trees, Cassie, composed entirely of wood. Gabriel is immensely confused, and a wooden hand emerges from a nearby tree and grabs Gabriel who shouts at Holly to get it off him. Holly says that the forest is just exercising its power, whatever scraps it could reclaim. More hands emerge from the tree and from the ground, each of them grabbing Gabriel as he struggles. Holly simply laughs and pulls out a cigarette. The hands begin pulling Gabriel towards the tree as cracks open in the bark. He screams at Holly to stop this, as he can't decide what's natural and what isn't, but Holly just says that neither can he. Holly drops his cigarette and walks away while gently whistling, as Gabriel continues to get pulled towards the tree. Later that day, it rains, turning the cigarette to mush and spilling the tobacco onto the earth. The SCP-6000 contest was focused on the singular theme of nature, and 6005 is one of the entries that really hones in on that theme. The idea is not necessarily that the natural world is strictly better than the modern one, but rather that the Foundation continues to grant itself the power to decide what should or should not be. Perhaps the world would have been better off if 6005 was allowed to run free, 
creating a shared harmony of a globe-spanning garden. Or perhaps the Foundation was right, and it did need to be stopped or curbed in some way. Rather than trying to find a workable compromise, however, they enforced their power with no regard to the consequences, and now the forest they've created is left to grow as it pleases. It's hard to say if the ending of this one is a positive one, especially as the aftermath is left unstated, but Dr. Gabriel got his comeuppance for justifying the means. Knowing the Foundation, they'll likely find a way to crush this dream one way or another, with the best of intentions, but the natural world will continue to persist. <laughs>